As we collectively start our journey into 2012, the one thing we know for sure is that for most of us, it will be filled with surprises. Some surprises will be wonderful and gracious and just glorious. Others might be odious and not so pleasant in our lives. I'm a grandfather now, and my daughter is about to give us our third grandson. But I can remember back when my children were still very, very young, and we were trying to teach them that great craft we call potty training. One of them in particular was going through a difficult time, and we thought that this particular child had learned uh, how the thing was supposed to work. And one day I was changing his diaper, and I smelled something suspicious. So I paused and said, did you make a mistake? And he gave me that grin that only a son can give of dad. And I must admit, I was, oh, that's so wonderful that he looked right into my eyes and grinned at me. And, oh, okay, maybe I'm just smelling something fishy. So I went on and thought, just before I unloosed the diaper, I thought, did you make a mistake? No, I rolled his eyes. No, no. As I peeled off that final fastener, he looked right into my eyes and he shouted out as I smelled and saw something I just could not believe. He shouted out, surprise! <laughs> surprise. That might be the word that characterizes our life this past year and might characterize our lives as we enter into 2012. Just take a few moments and think back upon your own life this past year. What are some of the surprises that came into your life? Medically, I can think of my own situation. It was June. I was, had made preparations to go to Croatia to visit one of our missionaries, Dr. Peter Kuzmich, to be involved in the graduation ceremonies at the Evangelical Seminary in Osijek, trying to get ready to leave I hastily grabbed the lawnmower and started to mow the grass. It was a hot day in June. It was muggy. About halfway through, I had some shortness of breath, and so I stopped and thought, this is strange, and kind of caught my breath, and then continued mowing the grass. Went inside and mentioned that to my wife. As you know, she's a medical doctor. She started to ask me those probing medical questions. Is there any pain in your chest? Do you have any pain in your arm? How long was the shortness of breath? I hate it when my loving wife becomes the probing doctor. So I minimized my answers because I realized that I had a non-refundable ticket to Croatia and I needed to get on an airplane in two days, but she convinced me to go see my cardiologist. So I didn't have an appointment, but I managed to track down a cardiologist in his uh, hallway and I mentioned my particular symptoms, minimizing them as he asked me a series of questions. Now, two years prior to that, I had gone in and had some sim similar symptoms, and nothing had developed at all. We'd had an angiogram, and everything was fine. So he said, well, I'm a little bit concerned, but you can go on your trip to Croatia. So I was on the airplane and was in Bosnia and Herzegovina and Montenegro and Croatia for two weeks. A lot of climbing, long days, short nights. When I came back, I went to see him again, and he said, well, let's, let's just run some tests and make a long story short. Soon I wound up in the hospital at St. Raphael's in New Haven, and they were running a, an angiogram. And again, 
Two years ago, they had done something very similar. Nothing. Six years before that, I had had some angioplasty, but that was all, and everything was taken care of. And so as I awoke from the anesthesiologist's uh, work in my life, coming out of the recovery room, I noticed the doctor was there, the cardiologist. We exchanged pleasantries, and then he, I noticed there was a man standing behind him. And my cardiologist turned to me as I was laying there and said, let me introduce you to your heart surgeon. And my response was, what, is there something wrong with my heart? Now, that's a pretty dumb question to ask a heart surgeon. He told me that uh, my three main arteries, one was 100% blocked, one was 90% blocked, and the third one was 70% blocked. Three days later, I came out of the triple bypass surgery. Doing great now. Feel great. Thank you for your prayers. I'm grateful that my wife asked me those probing questions. What awaits us in 2012? We don't know. Maybe it's best that we don't know. But it probably will be full of surprises. And I can guarantee you a third thing, a second thing, and that is simply this. That in 2012, you and I will be involved in spiritual conflict. It may not always be visible to us, but you and I are involved in a cosmic struggle, a struggle between good and evil. We have an advocate, and we have a deadly foe. As we enter 2012, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Page 859 in the Pew Bible here at Fairfield, and I'm not sure where it is, Long Ridge, but it's somewhere in your Bible. Here Peter writes to the church, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter reminds the readers of this epistle in the first century. And he also would remind those of us in this 21st century here in this congregation that we have a dangerous adversary. Notice how he is characterized in verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. C.S. Lewis, the noted English author, says there are two equally opposite extremes we can fall in when we think of spiritual warfare and the devil. The first is to have an excessive interest in the devil and his works. To see him behind every tree, every bad event in our lives. But there's an equal and opposite danger, and that is to disavow or not believe in his presence at all. He is on the prowl, Peter writes. Make no mistake, the devil, your adversary, is out to get your soul. And he is actively seeking a prey that he can devour. This is a truly a remarkable statement when you think of the author, Peter. What does Jesus say to Peter earlier in the, epistle, in the Gospels? 
In Luke, the 22nd chapter, the 31st verse, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I was wheat sifted in the ancient world. It is thrown up into the air for the turbulence and the winds to blow away the chaff, and then it falls down to the earth. It is a remarkably violent act. And sometimes that's what Satan wants to do to us. He wants to violently work in our lives. And other times, the wheat and the chaff is separated from it by a grinding, something that just goes on and on and on and, and seems to never be at an end. The devil is on the prowl, Peter says. He's looking for someone to devour. The image he uses, he calls him a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. The devil in Greek, or Satan in Hebrew, is on the prowl. He is after your very soul. The adversary for the Christian is taking no prisoners. No quarter given. No guarantee of no pain. And Peter writes this to the church. Not to the non-believing world. He writes it to the church. Peter opens the epistle this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. For the young person here this morning, you may not believe that life is dangerous, but it is. It was Shakespeare who wrote in Romeo and Juliet these words. He jests at scars who never felt a wound. He jests at scars who never felt a wound. Make no mistake about it, whether you are young or old, you have an adversary this year. And his goal is not to wing you, it's to devour you. Dr. Archie Kendall, the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, a very historic church, has coined an expression called the betrayal factor. In the opinion of Dr. Kendall, 100% of believers eventually go through a period when God seems to have let them down. It may occur shortly after becoming a Christian. The new convert loses his job or his child becomes ill or businesses reverses, reverses occur. Or maybe after serving him faithfully for many years, life suddenly starts to unravel. It makes no sense. It seems so unfair. The natural reaction is to say, Lord, is this the way you treat your own? I thought you cared for me. I was wrong. I can't love a God like this. Undoubtedly, there are some here this morning who can identify with the betrayal factor. You feel that God let you down in 2011 and you are fearful to walk into 2012. I often use a quote that goes like this. Confession is good for the soul, 
but usually bad for the reputation. I will chance my reputation with you and say that although I preach against the health and wealth gospel on occasion, there are times when that, that uh, thought becomes part of my actions. And so when I came back from Croatia, and the doctor told me I had to have surgery on my heart, I thought of my family. I thought of my kids, my wife. I found myself saying, Lord, I didn't go to Hawaii. I mean, I went to Croatia. I was working 14-hour days over there. I was speaking and I was, you know, had long days. And Lord, I, I was serving the church and the missions program here at Black Rock. And, and this is the reward I get? I come back to heart surgery? Lord, it seems so unfair. And there was a time when I felt the betrayal factor. Confusion can wreck our faith, can't it? I had momentarily forgotten that we have an adversary. But as we enter 2012, we are not to do so fearfully. For Peter gives us four great words of, words of encouragement and comfort. First of all, he says in verse 7, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In the midst of the battle, you and I are going to experience anxiety. We're going to experience fear. For that's a natural reaction to danger around us. But what Peter is saying here is we are to cast our anxiety. When we have those feelings, we are not to deny them. The anxiety or the fear that we have, rather we are to cast them on him. And who is the him in verse 9? Verse 6 tells us, Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. Anxiety in the original Greek has the connotations of uh, being drawn in two directions. And isn't that true of your Christian life? It's certainly true of my Christian life. I'm drawn in two directions. And so I, I take my anxiety, and to use the analogy of the fisherman, I put it on the hook, and I cast it out, away from me. But then all too often I'll reel it back in. And I'll think, is it still on the hook? Oh, it's there. And I, then I throw it back out again. And I reel it back in. And my life becomes one of casting and reeling and casting and reeling. Never truly saying, God, I give this to you. It belongs to you. Why, do I, why can I do that? Why can I cast my anxiety on him? Verse 7, because he cares for you. Verse 6, so that God's mighty hand may lift you up in due time. And here lies one of the great uniquenesses of Christianity. And that simply is this, that we serve a God who cares for us. Unlike all other religions that say you have to earn your way, you have to get on the good side of this small God. Or you have to live a life that results in, in being able to be reincarnated in, as another being. The God we serve cares for us. To use anthropomorphic language, K 
caring is part of the very DNA of God. It's who he is. It's what he does. And he especially cares for the downtrodden. To the person this day who may feel betrayed. David writes in the 34th Psalm, verse 15, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those with a crushed spirit. So Peter says, first of all, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Secondly, he says, verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. We are to do two things. We are to be alert and we are to be self-controlled. We are not to allow the events of life to control our faith. Don't be surprised. Be watchful. This is just a continuation of what Peter has said in the fourth chapter, the twelfth verse. Do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his joy is revealed. One of the problems that we often face, maybe, maybe better said, one of the problems I often face is that I allow things and events to clutter my faith. I have expectations of the way I want God to act. I have my timetable. I have my series of events. You know, I really don't like the last half of that verse, verse 6. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. I don't like the due time part of that. I mean, I I want him to do his work now, in my way. In the archives of the church I served at previous to coming to Black Rock, there's an eight millimeter film of a missionary named Paul Stow. It's one of those grainy pictures that was shot in the 30s by a not very sophisticated cameraman. And as Paul Stow enters the scene, in this very grainy picture, I tried to get it this morning, but they wouldn't give it to me, my former church. I don't, I'm not sure what that means. But in this very grainy picture, as Paul Stow enters uh, onto the film, two things stand out. First of all, Paul is dressed kind of in the 1930s missionary garb, and he looks just like one of those missions with the pith helmet and the whole bit. And there is a African sitting on a, well, appears to be a stump, and he's holding his jaw. And you can see that his jaw is swollen. And the second thing you note about this particular film is that Paul has in his hands a pair of pliers. Now, this is not a set of dentistry forceps. It's a pair of pliers like you'd get at Ace Hardware. And you can guess where this is going to go because Paul walks over to this African who's sitting on this stump, holding his jaw, and the man opens his mouth, and Paul style puts that pair of pliers in there, and what appears to be an eternity You see him twist and turn and pull. And finally, the African's head jerks back and out comes a tooth. 
No Novocaine. Nothing. My wife says I am a statist. I love to show that film because every time I do, I get the same reaction from people. They, they auto, almost automatically will hold their jaw and grimace. I love to watch other people suffer. <laughs> Paul Brandon, his book, co-authored by Phil Yancey, Paying the Gift No One Wants, tells of his mother teaching him to pull teeth in Africa also. Probably Dr. Tapazzi and other dentists have learned the same thing. Dr. Brand writes this. I learned two things. One is to slide your forceps down as far as you can near the roots so that the crown won't break off. The second rule is never, never, never let go. Peter says to us this morning, in the midst of your battles, never Never, never let go. Be alert. Be careful of your affections. And the things that Satan can use to devour you. Be careful of your affections concerning people of the opposite sex in your office or at school. Be careful of those things in your life that you watch on TV that you, really, you know you shouldn't. Be careful of those downloads that you placed in your iPad. Be careful, husbands, of not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Be careful, wives, of not respecting your husbands. Be careful of those things that appear to be morally neutral. But Satan can use those things in your life to devour you. And that is his goal. Be self-controlled. Be alert. Third, in our war with the adversary, Peter says, verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Peter says, quite simply, that we are not to give in to this prowling lion. We are not to give in to the devil. There is a place to flee, as Joseph does in the courts of Potiphar. But there also is a place where you can stand toe-to-toe to Satan, toe-to-toe to temptation, and say, I am not going to give in. I find it amazing that the two books in the New Testament that deal with suffering and spiritual warfare both talk about the devil. James adds a little caveat in the fourth chapter, the seventh verse. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As we resist the devil... It is the devil that flees, not us. As Christ followers, we may be confronted, but we do not have to be overwhelmed. Cast your your anxiety, be self-controlled, be alert, resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, and fourth, the last half of verse 9. Remember that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. We are not alone in that which is happening to us. And one of the devices that the devil uses in our lives is to convince us that we're the only person that's gone through this particular pain, this particular heartache. I've written on the flyleaf of my Bible a quote from John Watson. He's a Scottish Puritan. And the quote simply is this. 
Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. My conversations with people often ask them, what is the battle you're fighting? I've asked this to people I know well. I've asked it to people I hardly know at all. I've asked it people at the club I belong to. I've asked it if I've flown on airplanes to the person sitting next, sitting next to me. And although they may hesitate when they, to, to, as they think, does he really want to know the battle? I have hardly ever had anyone come back to me and say, you know, I'm not fighting any battle. Everybody. Everybody is fighting a battle. Maybe it's a battle over your marriage. Maybe it's a battle with your, one of your children. Maybe it's a battle over, with your boss over employment. Maybe it's a battle with your neighbor. Maybe it's a battle with your wife. Maybe it's a battle with how you pay bills. We are fighting a battle. And one of the things that Satan says to us is, you're all alone. You know, if I was to give you time in this congregation, whether it be here at, Long, at Fairfield or at Longridge, to turn to the person next to you and to ask this morning, what's the battle you're fighting? I bet all of us could identify that battle. But sometimes we're just too proud, too plastic to share it with someone else. And Peter says to us, remember, that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter says to us as we enter 2012, cast all your anxiety on God. Be self-controlled and alert. Resist the devil standing firm in your faith. Remember that people throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Two quick applications for us this morning. First of all, to the Christ follower. One of the great joys of being a Christian is knowing who we can thank when great things happen to us. The atheist or the agnostic has no one to express his or her gratitude as they hold a new little baby in their hand. Or as they get a new job. Or as they stand before the Grand Canyon, and watch that beautiful sunset. But you and I, as Christ followers, know who to be grateful to. And as we enter 2012, we need to not be fearful people. We need to be grateful people, thanking God for his goodness. And although Satan is on the prowl, remember, that he's on a leash. And God has no opposites. God is in control. And God cares for you. It's part of his very DNA. And then in a congregation this size, there are undoubtedly some who are trying to live without God. In your own strength. In all this talk this morning about the devil and spiritual warfare, it all sounds so unsophisticated for you. I mean, 
you'd say, preacher, this is, this is a modern world. You really don't believe that, do you? As I was working through this sermon this week, I could not get out of my mind a quote by a man named Thomas Hobbes. He's a scholar from another century, matter of fact, from the 16th century. Lived in a different time in a different place. But what I could not get out of my mind was his definition of hell. And it reads simply this. Hell is truth seen too late. Jesus, speaking to the crowd that's following him, says in Mark 8.36, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Trying to live without God this morning? How are you doing? If your life is not going so well, then this may be the day, this may be the hour, this may be the moment that through a simple act of faith, as you pray, asking God to take control of your life, A prayer of faith that says Christ's death on the cross was for you. His resurrection was for you. And God cares for you. This could be the day. As long as you have breath, it is not too late. There could be no better way to enter 2012 than with the realization that you belong to a God who cares, a God who loves you, and a God who will be there through all the vicissitudes of 2012. As we conclude this service, if you'd like to have prayer for anything, We're going to have people in the front who would love to pray with you. We want to encourage you to come forward. Maybe you want to talk to someone about your eternal soul. And that would be a great way for you to enter 2012. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we serve a God who cares. May we not be fearful this next year, but rather be watchful. May we be alert and self-controlled. May we remember that others are suffering. May we be people of compassion with those around us who are going through suffering. And for some here this morning, we pray this might be the day that they walk into the eternal blessedness of becoming a Christ follower. Father, as we look forward to 2012, we do do so as optimistic, joyful people. And we thank you. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Happy New Year. See you next week.